Hey, I'm Trey Kay, and you're listening to Us and Them from West Virginia Public Broadcasting and PRX. We tell the stories about the things that divide Americans. This year marks the 10th anniversary of the Upper Big Branch mine disaster in West Virginia. 29 men died when an explosion raced through the underground operation. The investigation that followed showed that coal output was king. Safety measures in the mine were not. The legacy of that tragedy has new life in the form of a documentary play called Coal Country. Co-creators Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen spent years interviewing family members and co-workers of the men who died. Coal Country opened in New York in early March, just days before the theater shut down because of the coronavirus pandemic. The play's soundtrack came from an onstage appearance by Grammy Award-winning musician Steve Earle, who serves as kind of a Greek chorus. The music and the script from interviews strives to tell the stories of the men who died. You know, the interesting thing that I've discovered having done this now a few times is everybody's grief is the same, you know? You know, everybody's love comes from the same place in their hearts, and everybody has a story. And, you know, even over time, you can meet somebody through something that they wrote. You know, the, the, the human voice is a powerful thing. And, you know, empathizing with each other is easy. You just have to have the opportunity. Eric says he and his wife Jessica followed the Upper Big Branch story when it happened. I come from rural America. I grew up working poor, and we eventually clawed our way to working class. And I'm not from West Virginia. I'm from rural Minnesota. But all the families I saw that were being interviewed reminded me of of uncles and aunts and neighbors and uh, people that I knew. And um, I I was impacted on on a much deeper level than I expected to be impacted not being from West Virginia itself. And I think the story stuck with us. At the time that it was unfolding, our child had just been born. So we weren't in a place to embark on a new documentary research process. And long after the story had left the news, it was still with us really strongly. And I think, you know, one of the things that we're looking for with these documentary pieces, because we only make one of these documentary plays every several years. We write all kinds of other stuff in between and act and stuff and direct and stuff. But we're looking for stories that get at things we feel are crucial for us to contend with as a nation and that are really of the moment that often get polarized and stuck in binaries and stuck in us and them. Jessica and Eric's first documentary-based stage production was called The Exonerated. It looked at the moral and ethical debate over the death penalty. The Exonerated project came together prior to the 2000 presidential election. But they say that the timeline for their play Coal Country initially had little to do with politics. The piece started and was conceived of before we were in the political landscape that we were in now. So, and we were we were in West Virginia doing the interviews during the 2016 West Virginia primary, but you know, at that point we had already been working on the piece for a year. The amazing thing about this story is this story's been going on in rural America since I was a kid. I remember when the first shopping mall came into town and Main Street shut down. I mean, that's going on in a lot of these coal towns now because they've become a single industry place. And then once that all goes, you know, the towns start to die. 
I experienced that in rural Minnesota and watched my town shrink and watched young people move away. And we never experienced anything as horrific as 29 men getting killed in a coal explosion. But the economic, the, the economic thing and the lost promise is kind of the same. It feels the same. That's something that I really related to, you know. Around the time we were working on the play, too, I lost both my father and my uncle within two weeks of each other. They both died of, they say, natural causes. You know, I, I think the kind of capitalism that we practice actually killed them both. But um, it happened while we were in the middle of making the play, and I really didn't understand the play until those two men died, and I felt real grief for the first time in my life. And then I multiplied that by 29, and my heart just broke open, you know, and I realized what we were making then. I got a video of Corey on my computer. He shouted underground to explain to his girlfriend what he'd done every day. That's the last voice I got of him. I guard that computer with my shit. Every now and then, I'll fold it open, I'll press the play button, and then I'll watch him pour them water out his boots because the water was deep. He was wet and working, and that old slang he had, he had that old backwoods holler talk. He poured that shit out his boots and just talk. And I sit there, and I cry from time it starts to time it finishes. You can see I'm covered with him. He's everywhere. He's all over my stuff. That's his truck outside the window. That's his balls hat. Everything's still in the truck. Haven't touched it. After watching the play, I got a real impact just hearing the stories of these people. I guess I'd like to hear what was it like contacting these people? What was it like getting their story? West Virginians are amazing at, at treating you like your family, you know, uh, unbelievably kind, great storytellers. And it just, you know, a lot of the guys that we talked to reminded me of my uncles. And like, we were obviously talking about something very difficult. But, you know, people are more than just their grief. They're filled with warmth and humor and, and love and caring and all sorts of other things. We're looking for, yeah, for the heart, for the three-dimensionality, for the humanity. And we know from our experience making this kind of work that once we're connected to a story and meet the real people, and if their stories make it into the play, we're connected to those people for life. So it's not like we go in, get the story, and leave. It's, there's a whole other thing that happens. So when we're sitting down with folks, you know, our interviews are usually four or five hours long. It's not a single-sided conversation. We're sharing with them also, right? It's a human encounter. But during that four hours, I guess I, I just would like to know a little bit about that. I mean... I, I would imagine that it has peaks and valleys, and you I'm get. Crying again. <laughs> well, you, you, I, I, I just thought you had an allergy, but you're you're crying. No, I was crying last night. <sighs> He's been tearing these, up these, since the play opened. These, it's just like I'm really glad the play opened, and then it's receiving so much attention because I keep thinking about these 29 guys. <sighs> you know. Coal miners help build America, you know, and right now they're having to stop trains with their bodies so they can get their benefits or get their last paycheck. You know, they help build this country. We should treat them like they did. You know, I don't care what side of the environmental thing you're on when it, when it comes to that. Like it or not, you know, the iPhone that you're holding, if there's steel in it, that steel was melted with coal, you know. 
and they help build the buildings in our cities and help build the country and you know they're not the problem you know and just the way that these men were treated bothers me too you know it's an undignified way to be treated i think it makes me sad i'm sorry i didn't mean to do that including previews Coal Country ran for about 25 performances before the public theater closed down, along with every other theater in New York City. The production got positive write-ups. Jessica and Eric still have plans for the production. They want to present the play to audiences in Coal Country. They want the families of the miners who died in the Upper Big Branch to witness the telling. Well, a lot of West Virginians have come and have grabbed me and touched me and grab my hand and and sometimes just with a nod of the head and sometimes with a long post have, have told us that we've gotten West Virginia right. You know, none of the families have come yet. Um, I, I, I suspect that we're on the track to having gotten it right, but, you know, that's really going to be up to them. I mean, I, I think we feel a tremendous sense of responsibility, right? I mean, these folks trusted us with their stories and they trusted us to carry their stories out into the world and the stories and, of their men and right and the stories of the men that they lost out into the world and so you know it's just really important to us that we that we get it right coming up steve Earle has a new album dedicated to the subject of this play it's called ghosts of west virginia john henry was a steel driving man you know, Steve is the heir to, like, you know, Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and a little bit Walt Whitman, a little bit Lead Belly. He's a poet. He's one of our American storytellers. He's telling the story of America through his albums. That's after a break. You're listening to Us and Them, which is supported in part by the West Virginia Humanities Council and the CRC Foundation. He beat the steam down and it didn't change. Music lifts us up and brings us together, even when we can't get together in person. Mountain Stage brings you live performances on the air, online, and in our podcast. They remind you how it feels to be in a live audience listening to live music. This is Larry Gross, host of Mountain Stage. Find a link to our stations and our podcast online at mountainstage.org. I'm Trey Kay, and you're listening to Us and Them from West Virginia Public Broadcasting and PRX. Just a few days before the coronavirus shut down theaters in New York City, the play Coal Country opened to audiences. Co-creators Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen spent years interviewing the families of the 29 miners who died when the Upper Big Branch mine exploded in West Virginia. This year is the 10th anniversary of that mine disaster. Jessica and Eric say their intention in presenting this story to New York audiences is to bridge a divide, to help people understand one another in America, to help them understand someone else's pain. I think 
prejudice against the rural working class is one of the last prejudices that it's sort of socially acceptable to hold openly. Certainly, that's not the only bias that people carry. But, you know, other biases, it's like no longer considered polite to express openly. But the things that people say about the rural working class in in New York City, in Los Angeles, right? People who are otherwise really conscious and progressive, it's like, it's pretty astounding. And so one of our aims with this play is to help disrupt that and to complicate that conversation. I think, you know, you can go way back in history and look at how the people in power, landowners, company owners, lawmakers, have created divisions and fissures between working people of different races, different geographies, different roles in production, right? So that working folks don't band together across the board. And I think one of the things we're seeing right now is a lot of those divisions being exploited and what happens when those divisions get exploited and then the internet layers on top of it all and, you know, makes our us lean into our divisions even more. And, and, so, and so in a way, this experience that you want the New York audience to feel is to to kind of mend that fissure, to, to mend that... Bridge or to, to bridge it. Yeah, to bridge it, to empathize across it, right? There's a way in which it's still acceptable, I think, to a lot of progressive urban audiences to think of these folks as like those people. Right. And I think anytime we're thinking of people as those people, them, it, them, yeah, it yeah. gets dangerous. And so looking at what New York audiences are taking away from it, that's that's part of the work the play is doing. Well, wake up in the morning and pray. Wake up in the morning and pray. Keep a wolf from the door and the devil at bay. Wake up in the morning and pray. Will a black lung kill me someday? Black lung kill me someday. Already underground, I reckon, anyway, but the black don't kill me someday. Well, the devil put the coal in the ground. Devil put the coal in the ground. Baby, the parliament down. Devil put the coal in the ground. When I walked out of the theater with my son and I said, I'm going to be interviewing these playwrights tomorrow. So would you tell me the part of the play that resonated with me the most and and we both chose the same moment and that your your face what do you think that I'm I'm going to say No you got to say it <laughs> Well the the family describing having to um to identify the remains of their loved ones It's a powerful moment in the play when Judy the sister of one of the coal miners who died identifies her brother's body. I have a lot of African-American friends who talk about growing up in this country and having their bodies disrespected, their physical safety disrespected. Workers should not be treated this way. When Judy talked about seeing her brother with us, I don't know if I can bring the right words to okay, it. Okay, I can talk about it. I mean, I think, you know, 
One of the things that those of us who live in relative privilege in this society take for granted is our feeling of physical safety and our feeling of physical safety in our bodies. And, you know, Eric was just talking about having a lot of African-American friends who talk about that in their reality, walking down the street in New York City or wherever else, that that's just not a given, right? It's just not a given that you're physically safe. And I think the same thing is true for these minors. The same thing is true for a lot of workers that do physical, physically dangerous jobs in America and in other parts of the world where there are no longer standards in place and no longer laws in place or laws being respected about protecting people's bodies. That understanding is really crucial. The understanding that we all have a right to feel physically safe as we move through the world. And if we don't feel safe in our bodies, if our bodies feel under threat as we move through the world, everything else is threatened too. And there's there's something too also that's re, that's comes from being raised congregationalist in rural Minnesota. Like when my grandfather was buried, everybody had the opportunity to view his body, and there was something sacred about that. And there was something that was okay about that that we were saying goodbye. And there's there's something anti-religious in a way about not having the opportunity to do that, and that's what struck me about what Judy said to us the most. She was, like, describing, she was describing the desecration of, of her loved one's body, right? So not it wasn't just the loss of her loved one that she lived through because of these events, but also the desecration of the body. And I think that happened to a lot of people. And I think that's, that's something that we have to face. It's real. She, she was a witness. And I probably have to confess that, you know, I didn't probably read as deeply into all the coverage of the story as maybe you did or other people did. But I, I feel like I pretty much got an understanding of what happened. But I didn't get that kind of detail. Mm-hmm. And and I, I don't I don't remember it being reported the way that Judy's story was presented in this piece. And it's it was the first thing I thought of when I woke up this morning. I struggle with even including it. You want to talk about that? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, I think, you know, that what you're saying goes to some of the differences between what it is that we do and straight journalism. Because we have a kind of conversation with people where those things open up emotionally and the full three-dimensionality of the human experience opens up in a way that is different than an interviewer who's just seeking information or reporting on the facts. We're trying to report on the full human experience and the felt emotional experience. I'm so sorry. I've been so emotional for this whole thing. I just like, you know, I feel such a sense of, of duty to these 29 people and none of the families in West Virginia know, but I, 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 I love them so much. Hmm. And I love these men so much. And it's just, it's just really, it's like the first, I'd never, I never do this, but it's just, <laughs> you know, and the fact that so many people came together and like, you know, are making theater money <laughs> to do this and sacrificing time to, to, to bring the stories to light just means so much to me.
After the Upper Big Branch mine explosion in 2010, investigators charged the mine boss for violating safety and health standards. Don Blankenship was chairman and CEO of the Massey Energy Company that oversaw that mine. Blankenship was charged with conspiring to willfully violate the safety requirements. He was found guilty of a single misdemeanor and served a one-year prison sentence. Jessica was in West Virginia for part of the trial and found a way to incorporate it into the play. Mr. Blankenship was convicted of conspiracy to violate mine safety laws, which is he was convicted of conspiracy as opposed to being actually convicted of being responsible for the explosion. And I believe his attorneys filed a motion so that the families could not be legally classified as victims, and therefore they couldn't read their victim impact statements in court. And I will say that being in the room for that and seeing the families who I hadn't met yet come prepared to speak and then not be able to speak left a really strong emotional impression on me. You know, it it emerged organically over time that, okay, they didn't get to say what they had to say then, but maybe these folks who told us their stories can get to say what they have to say here in this other place to this other room of people. When it's done right, theater can be a theater, but it can also be a church. It can also be a courtroom. It can also be a political chamber. Like, it's a place where all of those things, all of those things, are, by the way, are shaped the same way in terms of architecture. They're shaped the same way. And I have to say that my anger about them not being able to speak is what really, on the hardest days, kept me going on working on the play. And I think a lot of the reason I'm feeling so emotional and stuff today is I can finally let some of that go because the voices are going to be heard now. You're also making me think of, there's the part where Steve is on stage and you kind of have like a, like a kind of a pyramid mm-hmm. where he is at the front of the pyramid with his guitar singing the song and they invoke the names of all of the the people who died in that accident. It's about Carl Acord and Jason Atkins, Christopher Bell, Gregory Stephen Brock, Kenneth Allen Chapman, Robert E. Clark, Charles Timothy Davis, Corey Davis, Michael Lee Ellswick, William L. Griffith, thing I loved, you have that that kind of haze in the theater that kind of reminds me of coal dust underground when you're in a mine, but then also the types of bare light bulbs 
that are on the set also are very reminiscent of the types of, of bulbs that are used in underground mines. And you have 29 light bulbs that all, at first they almost just seemed like stars in the sky, but each one illuminates, I guess, when, when their name is called. And it's very moving. And uh, we traveled to West Virginia and I, I went to, you know, talk meet the people myself because I, I was basically hired to write songs. And what I do is I'll perform in the piece, but what I do is I'm, I'm sort of like a, a chorus, only I, I sing a song that sets up the transition as the narrative moves along. And it's their story and their words. This is, uh, if you go to the public theater in New York City in February, uh, the first thing that you'll be subjected to is I'll come out and sing the song, which sort of tells a little bit of the history of that part of, that part of the world. Steve Earle wrote an entire album for this play, which will be released later in May. Steve is a three-time Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter whose songs have been recorded by Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, just to name a few. I mean, he is a big deal. And I can't think of another artist who would have been better suited to creating music for this project. I asked Jessica and Eric how they got him involved. When Jessica and I decided to do the play, I said, I, I think there needs to be music in this. And both of us immediately thought of Steve because, you know, he's, he's, he's the, guy. the guy. He fits the suit, you know, <laughs> yeah. he's just, he's the guy. It just seemed like such a natural fit, this story and his music. And we knew about his love of theater. And so we approached him and pitched him the idea and he immediately came on board. Yeah, Steve Earle is the sort of the Greek chorus of the piece. But, you know, Steve is the heir to, like, you know, Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and a little bit Walt Whitman, a little bit Lead Belly. Like, Steve's got a lot going on. He's a poet. He's, he's one of our American storytellers. He's telling the story of America through his albums. Union, God, and country was all they ever knew. They worked early morning till evening whistle blew. When you strike the mind and walk the line, because that's just what you do when you're born in West Virginia. Steve came down to West Virginia with us for the first part of the interviews, so we shared that experience and the experience of the people and the place. And then, you know, we figured out together as a team that it, it didn't make sense for him to start writing songs until we knew what the shape of the play was going to be. So we then came back to New York, had all of the interviews transcribed, dove into our typical workshop process with actors where we started working with the transcripts and carving away at them and shaping the material until we started to have the shape of the play. Also, our, our sort of initial ideas with Steve were that the songs could rep represent, I promise I'm not going to cry again. You might cry again. Our, our initial sort of self-directed marching orders for the three of us and with Steve was was that the songs represent the voices of the miners who aren't there the, the men who can't speak which you know um, beautifully comes back in the final song of the play if I could only see your face again until I turn around to find you there if I could see your face again and I knew what I knew then I wouldn't make you work so hard to win me I'd surrender to your arms 
Wrapped around me safe and warm Cause I knew you were the one from the beginning And I'd do almost anything If I could only see your face again We started with this idea that the songs would represent the voices of the miners, and I think they do that, but they also represent a lot of other things. They represent the place, they represent the history, they represent sometimes the emotional experience of some of the people who are on stage telling their stories, not the actors, but the real people, right? So the, they're representing the voices of the survivors as well as the miners. A lot of West Virginians that have come to the play have have said or expressed either online or in person to me, this has happened several times now, that they've kind of come in with crossed arms. You know, like, okay, show us what you got, you know, and the expectation that we would screw it up and, and disrespect them the, the way that West Virginians are so often disrespected in the, in, in the media, I think. And the fact that they loosen up after a couple minutes and realize it's not that and actually walk away feeling seen is, is kind of an incredible secondary effect of doing this incredibly tragic story you know like that that feeling has happened to us over and over and over again from from west virginia's you know as you say that i remember growing up in west virginia i graduated high school like in well 1980 and in the late 1970s the show the love boat was on television and I remember, I don't know what you guys remember of The Love Boat. I remember The Love Boat. I love that Fantasy Island was on right afterwards. Yeah. But there was one episode where I think it was a family, and it was Donny Osmond, who apparently was from West Virginia, and his father or grandfather was Slim Pickens. Okay. And you see Slim Pickens come onto the boat and look at wherever the port was where they took off, and he says, This is bigger than the big city of Charleston. And I remember people in West Virginia, when we saw that, we were just like, oh. I mean, part of the reason that I'm here with you right now is that I I came here to New York as an actor Uh in many ways because you feel like you come from a place that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. That to me, what places that mattered you saw on television. And you saw in the movies, so I wanted to go there. And that's mm-hmm. kind of why I'm here. And then you're here, you kind of realize, no, you are really from a special place. Mm-hmm. And that many people have gotten it wrong. Mm-hmm. They don't really get it. They don't really get or understand. And I really do feel like you guys got it. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, West Virginia matters to us, <laughs> and it matters to Everybody who's been part of making this play happen now, including lots of people who have never been there. And I think in our country right now, we're seeing what happens and what the results are when we act like or when those who are in power act like it's acceptable to act like certain places don't matter. Every place matters. Everyone matters. Every life matters. And I think we're not going to get to any better place as a society, any sustainable place, any livable place as a society, unless we start acting like everyone matters, every place matters, and until we start caring about people who aren't us. 
And in terms of just, you know, uh, going back again to the music, which is, you know, the sort of soul of the play, if the West Virginians stories are the, are the heart, having lost my dad and my uncle so close together, um, coincidentally around the time that we were getting a lot of songs from Steve, uh, Steve's songs actually helped me through my grief. Like they have this incredible effect, you know, and there's a, there's a healing power in his music. And, you know, my hope is when West Virginians come and see this or the families of the 29 men come and see this or, or when they hear Steve's album that's going to come out in May, that some of that hope and some of that love and some of that understanding will be transferred to them in some way. Because it certainly helped me through my grief. And I can't promise that to anybody else, but maybe it will offer some comfort to hear their loved one's name and those 29 names that he lists in the song it's about them. A postscript to this story. Just days after I spoke with Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen, the coronavirus pandemic brought life to a halt around the world. Coal country closed indefinitely. Jessica and Eric hope they can still bring their play to West Virginia audiences. The Upper Big Branch Mine in Raleigh County, West Virginia, was sealed in 2011. The Massey Energy Company no longer exists it was bought out by a competitor. Today, the only evidence of the operation is a long granite memorial along the roadside. There are 29 silhouettes carved into the black stone of the men who died. You've been listening to Us and Them, our team for this episode is me, Trey Kay, Morgan Flannery, and Kate Smith. Special thanks to Laura Rigby and the folks from the New York Public Theater, and also to Jesse Bauer and Brady Brock of Steve Earle's team. The new album, The Ghosts of West Virginia by Steve Earle and the Dukes, will drop on May 22nd. Michael Lipton and Tristan Lozow wrote and performed the Us and Them show music. Mark Lerner designed our logo. And Lelena Price helps us create images for the web. The wonderful people at PRX and West Virginia Public Broadcasting make us and them possible. So do grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the West Virginia Humanities Council, and the CRC Foundation. Us and Them was originally developed with assistance from the Mentorship Program at AIR, the Association of Independence in Radio. We'll see you next time on Us and Them. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. From PR.